Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Tim Cross, the Economist Science Correspondent. Coming up on today's show, why the rings around Saturn might be younger than we think. This theory explains both why the moons are as they are and what the cataclysm was that formed the rings. And a new study into how non-antibiotic drugs might make bacteria resistant to antibiotics. What was unexpected was that they found that drugs like antihistamines also seem to kill off these bacteria. But first, Facebook is in the middle of a firestorm this week after revelations around a British company called Cambridge Analytica, which is accused of improperly obtaining vast quantities of Facebook user data. Joining me in the studio is Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent, and Silky Carlo from Big Brother Watch, a non-profit organisation that campaigns on civil liberties and privacy. But before I turn to you, Silky, I just want to ask Hal, for the benefit of people at home, what exactly has happened? Why is Facebook in the news right now? Facebook is in the news because in 2015, a researcher called Alexander Kogan built an app which asked people to answer personality questions on Facebook, like those apps that say, what Disney princess are you? Answer these questions, plug into your Facebook profile and we'll tell you about yourself. The app pulled quite a lot of data out of Facebook, 270,000 people actually took the test. And through those people, the way Facebook's permissions worked at the time meant that Mr. Kogan got another roughly 50 million Facebook profiles through this app. These were the friends of people who'd taken the quiz. Friends of people who'd taken the quiz, exactly. Now, the allegation is that Mr. Kogan passed that data to a company called Cambridge Analytica, which did some work for Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Beyond that, we don't know a huge amount. But for Facebook, the biggest issue is that this has focused attention massively on them, the way they gather and process data, the way that their systems can be used potentially to target individuals. And so what is a scandal about a small British electioneering company that no one has ever heard of has now turned into a major, major controversy for one of the world's largest companies. And Silky, this is exactly what Facebook does, right? Its business model is to suck in as much data as it can from its users and then allow other people access to that data to sell them products. So why do you think this has blown up now as opposed to six months ago, a year ago, two, three years ago? What's caught the imagination about this particular case, do you think? It's an interesting question because this has been described as a data breach by some journalists. It's not. What it appears to be is an expose of Facebook's business model that has always been quite abstract in the mind of its users, but now has been illustrated in a very concrete way. And it's a risk that privacy advocates have been talking about for years. If you have mass data collection ranging from our deepest thoughts and emotions to photos of family members and so on, That information is there to be used and exploited. That's the very business model of Facebook. And there's always been a risk to democracy with that kind of information exploitation, which has potentially been demonstrated this time. 
And that phrase you used, a risk to democracy, that's really interesting because if I were to play devil's advocate, I might say, well, if you go back to 2012, you can find all kinds of boosterish pieces about how great Barack Obama's presidential campaign was and how they used all this Facebook data and wasn't it wonderful and isn't it amazing. Now it's being presented as sort of like sinister propaganda and there's this almost this idea that somehow this lets people control the electorate. Why do you think the coverage is different now? It's always been sinister, but it's always gone on. It's only now that it's gained attention, I think, because of the methods of Cambridge Analytica, the fact that they offered a full-service propaganda machine, in the words of Christopher Wiley, the Cambridge whistleblower. And there is probably a legality question as to the ins and outs of the data transfer from the Cambridge academic to the profit-making company. But that's not really, I think, what's in the minds of members of the public. I think what people are suddenly aware of is that their information, their personal information is being exploited and their views are being manipulated. But you're absolutely right. This has been going on for years. Hillary Clinton spent millions of pounds on digital advertising and targeting in the 2016 presidential election. In fact, Cambridge Analytica also worked with two other Republican nominees in the presidential election in 2016. The Obama campaign had an incredibly advanced uh, digital targeting operation in the 2012 re-election campaign. And I think there's a bigger risk. It's not only democratic norms in presidential elections, but actually wholesale that are potentially put at risk by this kind of information exploitation. How will we ever know if Facebook is manipulating people's feeds, the information that they receive? I think that's why shares have dropped, because... The business model of Facebook has been exposed, has caused the scandal and is now put at risk. Do we have any sense of how effective this stuff is? Does advertising work is an unresolved 70-year-old question. We still do not know the answer to it. My current view is that what Facebook has is an effective way of not changing individual people's sort of minds. Facebook wasn't, you know, magically changing Clinton voters into Trump voters. But what it can do is just shift almost the environment in which people are talking in. It's like you might feel different if you're walking through a bright sunny wood versus a dark scary wood in winter. I think that's more akin to what's happening here. And I think that people should know about that. I don't necessarily take a position on whether it should or should not be allowed to happen. I'd be interested to hear what Silky says about that. But I think that the important thing is that, A, people know there's some kind of discussion about it. And then we can start to think about, well, maybe we need to have some rules that say you can't make the wood this dark or you can't make the wood shift from light to dark this fast. So that brings us kind of nicely onto the question of what, if anything, we should do about it. Because you know, Mark Zuckerberg's being summoned by legislators on both sides of the Atlantic. There's, there's all this talk that something must be done. Assuming this is as big a problem as it seems, what would you like to see done? This is a difficult question to answer because what we're critiquing is the very business model of Facebook. And it's difficult to imagine how this half a trillion dollar platform could exist without the data exploitation that keeps its engines going. Um, So just to push you on that, the idea is if we make any meaningful reforms to this, the price of that is that Facebook has to cease to exist as a company or at least change out of all recognition from what it is today? If Facebook adopted a serious position on users' privacy, it would be an unrecognisable platform for sure. 
it's like trying to square a circle. It's, it's hard to imagine how that actually works in practice, which I think is one of the reasons that this has caused such the level of public interest that it has, because people are now considering, is this a price that we're willing to pay? for this kind of a social network. And we should say as well, you know, Facebook is in the news at the moment, but they're not the only people who use this this business model. I mean, the whole this is how the whole advertising ecosystem on the internet works. Facebook has 2.2 billion profiles. There are 3 billion users of the internet. So their market share, if you like, is unparalleled and it really works quite differently to other social networks in you know, the extent of the information that it gathers. I think this has prompted a moment in many members of the public to consider, is it really worth it? Do I want to be on this platform? It may be that Facebook you know, goes the kind of MySpace direction, becomes slightly barren uh, online platform. Well, it's already losing traffic and, and losing users in, in some parts of the world. I'd be fascinated to know actually the number of people that have deactivated or deleted their accounts uh, in the last few days. Well, I guess we'll see because I, I get the sense this story is going to run for quite a while. Silky and Hal, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. You're listening to Babbage. Next, for the past 13 years, an American space probe called Cassini has been orbiting Saturn the second biggest planet in the solar system. Its mission ended in September when Cassini was crashed deliberately into Saturn's atmosphere. But Oliver Morton, our briefings editor, has been to the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in America to find out what Cassini's most recent batch of data tells us about Saturn. Oliver joins me now. Hi there, Oliver. Hi. So I understand, among other things, you've been listening to some presentations about Saturn's rings and its moons. Yes, absolutely. The um, Cassini mission came to an end last September, but the data that it sent back is still being analysed, and there's actually quite a lot of quite big papers about that science still to come out. But the, the one that really catches my attention and that of other people here is that it's now getting possible to put something like an age on the rings. And when you try, the answer is maybe not quite what you expect. It is becoming, I think, increasingly obvious. The final data and publications are still under review, but it's becoming increasingly obvious that the rings are really quite young. I mean, as one of the scientists involved put it here, they are no older than the oldest dinosaurs and no younger than the youngest dinosaurs, which means sometime between 250 million years ago and 60 million years ago, they came into being. Now, that's a big stretch of time by human standards, but in a solar system that's four and a half billion years old, that makes them pretty recent. And how have they come to that conclusion? Why do they think they're so young? Well, the rings are um, bright and pretty, and the solar system is not. It's actually slightly dirty. It's got comet dust suffusing it. And if you leave a bright white surface out in comet dust, then over the hundreds of millions of years, it gets darker. And the greater the mass of the rings the less this pollution, as they call it, which I think is a little value-laden, will affect them. And so if the rings are very massive, it will take them a long time to change colour. And if the rings are quite light, it will take them less time. And they seem pretty bright, so it seems like they've been around for less time. So given that we know roughly what their mass is and we know how bright they are, we can work out how old they must be by how dirty they are. Yes, they're not actually giving out a figure for how massive the rings are yet, because that's work that's still under review, as I understand it. But they are happy to say this, give give out this number of sort of like about as old as the dinosaurs. And so that's the rings. But how does that link with the moons? Well, 
This comes from work that's um, being discussed here, but was actually presented last year, showing that if you run simulations of Saturn's moons backwards in time, using a sort of like digital orrery, you find that about 100 million years ago, two of them set up one of these things called an orbital resonance, where energy bounces back and forth between their orbits. Fascinating things. That particular orbital resonance would leave a mark on the ring system, which isn't there. And so the argument in this paper is that because that mark of history isn't there, the moons don't have that long a history. So that leads to the idea that if the moons weren't there, then what was? And the suggestion is that another moon system, basically the same stuff in different packages, and that two of these moons collided with each other, effectively, are creating a huge big disk of mess out of which the current set of inner moons, of which there are five, was created, and also out of which the rings were created. So this theory explains both why the moons are as they are and seem to have, as it were, an impossible past, and what the cataclysm was that formed the rings. So that's quite an exciting sort of like two for one. Well, Oliver, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Tim. If you have any thoughts on Facebook or the rings of Saturn or whether life might be lurking on one of its moons, feel free to tell us in an email. Send them our way to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, we all know the problem with using too many antibiotics, which is that they give rise to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But a new piece of research suggests that antibiotics are only part of the picture and that a whole host of other drugs might promote exactly the same resistance in germs. So joining me to discuss this is one of our science correspondents, Anane Bhattacharya. So who did this study and what were they looking at? So this was by a group at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg. And what they were interested in is gut bacteria specifically. So these are the sort of commensals, the bugs that live in our guts. And what they did was they cultured about 40 different strains of these gut bacteria, which is a relatively small number of strains because there's thousands of, of different bacteria in the gut. But they chose the ones that were most representative. And then just to see what happened, more or less, they, they threw a thousand different drug molecules at them. And what they found was that, as expected, antibiotics killed off you know various strains of gut bacteria. What was unexpected was that they found that drugs like antihistamines and blood pressure medications also seem to kill off these bacteria. But what does this mean for, um, for sort of medicine and medical advice? Because the advice now very strongly is for doctors not to prescribe antibiotics when they're not needed, for people not to take them when they don't really need them, because, you know, every time you do, cumulatively, it makes the resistance problem worse. Some of the drugs in this study that promoted resistance are, are pretty common. There were some that are used for cutting down on stomach acid, for instance, proton pump inhibitors and so on. These are drugs that lots of people take. Does this mean we're going to have to clamp down on those as well if we want to live in a world where antibiotics still work? Well, I think we should sound a note of caution here because this is a really early basic study of the way these gut bacteria are responding to these drugs. And it's sort of ringing alarm bells, but we are going to need to do a lot more in terms of clinical work to unravel these effects in some detail. But the authors did mention to me that we do have to look carefully at whether the use of some of these drugs is always justified. I mean, we shouldn't obviously stop taking blood pressure pills because there's a problem 
with potentially developing、um, antibiotic resistance. But it's going to be one factor that will need to be taken into account in future if there's if more work backs this up. Scientists battle cry: more research is needed. Thanks very much, Anna. Thanks, Tim. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of the Economist, or you can find us online at economist.com. I'm Tim Cross in London. This is the Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com/bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.